Welcome to The Pen and the Yod. Join Rabbi Michael Siegel from Anshayamit Synagogue in Chicago and author Jonathan Eig as they talk about this week's Torah portion of Titzaveh, The Scent of Authenticity. We're in the midst of all of the intricacies of the building of the tabernacle. In this week's portion, we have the eternal light, and we have an eternal light in our sanctuary. And we have the command for the clothing of the high priest, and the clothing of the high priest ultimately become the garments of the Torah, the crown and the breastplate and all of that. But the Torah also talks about a container to spence incense. And it says, you shall make an altar for burning incense, make it of acacia wood. It, it tells the size and you overlay it with pure gold. And we never talk about incense. And in fact, there is no incense in our, our um, service. Although if you go to a Greek Orthodox church, you'll see incense being used there. Or you, you go to a Catholic church, there is a form of incense because they are actually trying to copy the, the temple service um, <clears throat> in a more exacting way than we do. But it would be weird if this Shabbat we had an incense uh, dispenser that was kind of wafting out Febreze or something else like that <laughs> to, um, you know, create uh, that sensation. Although when you go to hotels now, there's a whole huge issue about what the aroma is when you walk in and aromatherapy and this and that. So the question is, why? Why did they have it in the temple? And what can we learn from it in our day? Sounds like you're saying that we could have had it, that uh, the tradition is there, the history is there, that, that it's one of these things that didn't get passed along, but it might have. Well, I'm going to argue that it is there in a kind of an interesting, different kind of a way. Because what was the purpose of incense? You know, in a, in a place where they were slaughtering animals and burning them on the altar, what do you suppose the purpose of the incense was? Yeah, that's a pretty good clue you gave me there. It probably really stunk in there, and they were trying to get rid of the smell of that burning animal carcass. Yeah. I mean, look, we live in Chicago, and there was a time when you would wake up in the morning and go outside and smell the stockyards from miles away. So incense was a way of trying to mitigate the noxious odors of the temple. And what I think is interesting about that is that everything in the temple is, or the Mishkan in this case, the tabernacle, is God-focused. It's all about our experience of God and how we experience God and how do we relate to God. But the incense are really all about us, right? It's a way for the temple experience, the worship experience, to be a more pleasant and more engaging experience for the worshiper, right? Because if you're sort of overcome by the fumes of the sacrificial cult, what happens to your religiosity? What happens to your kavana, your intention, right? What happens to your experience, right? It's a pretty yucky affair. Yeah, so we're mixing the, the combination of the holy and the practical, uh, which is certainly something we can relate to today because, you know, our, our rituals, our services are deeply rooted in tradition, but we're also being practical about, you know, what people want and what people can tolerate and, and um, how to make it more appealing so, so people are in, in the mood to, uh, to join the services, right? So um, I like the fact that there's some compromise going on there. Right. In fact, the rabbis actually have developed this into a whole 
concept of called it's called tircha de tzibura, tircha de tzibura, troubling the congregation. Right. Mm. So there's certain things that you don't do because it would trouble the congregation. I'll give you sort of an odd example, but it's it's a classic one. So when we when it's a holiday, you might read two from two different scrolls of the Torah. If you only have one Torah, then you'd have to finish the one reading and then roll the to the next reading, which can take a few minutes. And so the rabbis say that you should have two Torahs, one roll to each place, because of Tircha Ditzibor. You don't trouble the congregation. That idea of how do we make the service engaging and not onerous to the congregant, and how do you maintain the authenticity of the service? Well, that's an interesting question that I think we do, that we deal with today, right? When people come to synagogue, how long should the service be? Well, different movements have different understandings of that. And at the same time, how true do you need to be to the authenticity of the service, right? So is it all about the congregant, or how do you strike the balance between the comfort of the congregation and the authenticity of the tradition? Right. It's a great question. And I remember, you know, a few weeks back, we had Bright Star Church members attending our Friday night service. And clearly, we tried to make it a little more understandable and user-friendly for people who had never been to a Shabbat service before. Uh, and yet, uh, you know, you're task was also to maintain the authenticity so that those of us who have been before um, got what they what they came for. And, and um, you know, you don't want to change too much. You don't want to dumb it down. You don't want to make it too um, entertaining to the point where you lose your, your authenticity. That's a balance that I think we strike in a lot of ways in our lives, right? Like, how much are we willing to help our children understand that we keep the Shabbos w- without making it too hard for them, but also not making it too easy. Right. Where's the balance? And I think it's an interesting issue that during COVID, right, we were very conscious of the fact that people's attention span online was lessened, right? Mm-hmm. So services were shorter, sermons were shorter, because we just didn't feel like we would have people's attention for the entire length of the service. Right or wrong, that went into our thinking. You know, how That's kind of the incense of our day. Yeah, to to try and make sure that people could could stay tuned. We did that on the high holidays as well. Maybe for you, maybe one of the upsides of of COVID. But <laughs> um, but the bottom line is is that we think about this stuff all the time. How much English should you have in a service? How much English should you sing in a service? Right. Most of the people in our congregation, and I think this is true for many non-Orthodox congregations, the numbers really vary as to people who are comfortable reading Hebrew or can read Hebrew at all, is the command to the congregation is to do more English? Or do we then feel like, where am I? What am I doing? So this is this is really the, the challenge of the day. It's a really interesting question. And, and I, I want to stick on that, on that word that you used, authenticity, for a minute. Because when I talk to people about writing, I often tell them, especially young writers, that it's okay to try out different styles. It's okay to imitate other writers who you admire, um, it's okay to read something and and say, I'm going to try to write like that guy or that woman. Um, but ultimately, you have to find your own voice. You have to know what the, what's authentic to you. Are you expressing yourself in a way that ultimately comes from your heart? 
after you try on all those other things, after you, it's like, you know, trying on your, your brother or your sister's clothes. Ultimately, you know, you got to find your own style. You got to find your own voice. And if you don't have that authenticity, if you, if you wander too far away from who you really are, um, then I think you lose all sense of meaning. And, and um, what I'm curious here about the, um, you know, the issue of the incense and, you know, how we perform our rituals and how we worship on Shabbat is, you know, what's the line that goes too far for, you know, for certain, certain congregations, um, it's different, right? Um, but we come from a, from a conservative tradition and there are lines that we, that we can't cross without maybe losing that sense of authenticity. I think that's the great challenge. You know, there are specific melodies, tunes, what we call nusach, that um, Shabbat services are sung by. How, how closely do we want it to, to adhere to that when you could use different melodies that, um, you know, might feel more contemporary, might feel more melodic, might feel more of an opportunity to participate, right? So one of the things that I think we try to try to balance it on Shaman is we want people to be able to come in and engage in the service, right? So we'll often start with a wordless song, you know, la la with na 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 or la 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 as as the lyrics. So everybody can participate. So you get this kind of baseline where everybody's singing. But if you do that for the entire service, then it doesn't feel like you were at that service. And so I think this is something we struggle with. What is our responsibility as the worshiper to be true to our tradition? You know, I think you had said towards the beginning that that, that this idea that you're standing up and saying a prayer that your grandfather, great-grandfather, and going all the way back uh, in history, that you're standing in the same place with them, right? That that matters. Well, if you take that apart or you re-engineer the entire experience, both musically and also by reducing the prayer itself, right? Or making it a more creative prayer. What happens to that moment? Yeah, it's a great question. And and I do think that it gets back to authenticity. I can remember as a kid learning these songs and wondering, wow, these, you know, these harmonies, these melodies, they sound very 20th century, like, but it's amazing because they're from the Torah. So Adon Alum is a catchy tune, right? Um, but gosh, I guess it's been around for thousands of years. And it never occurred to me that it maybe had only been written 50 years ago, that particular melody. That's the way you might think about it. But you find out that some of the tunes that we use for Adon Alum go back to the, I don't know, the 18th century. And some of them were based upon popular tunes of their time, mm -hmm. right? So you see that in many cases, that some of the tunes for the songs that we sing, they may not be authentically Jewish, but they have been Judaized, if you will. And now they feel very Jewish. Yeah. And I think we've suddenly, like very quickly, um, adopted the Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah, which suddenly feels very traditional and feels authentic right. to the service. So these things can evolve, but there's some core that's rooted in my great grandparents, did I? Uh, but, it, but it doesn't have, but it can, it can evolve. You know, that's so interesting that you said that. I remember when Cantor Mizrahi sang that for the first time on Yom Kippur, I think it was, Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur. And, you know, we're going through the service and people are participating in the way that they participate. I think people do participate at Anshim it really quite well. But when he sang Hallelujah and used that Leonard Cohn melody, 
suddenly everyone was singing it. Yeah. Right. Like the whole room had come together, coalesced in that moment. And it was really powerful. And so to me, that speaks of the need to integrate contemporary melodies and occasional English singing, but also to kind of balance out, you know, the part for the participatory level. And, you know, if you try to make the service too participatory, you're going to lose the Hebrew and you'll lose some of the traditional melodies. But if you only focus on the Hebrew and the traditional melodies, then people aren't going to come in. So I think that the challenge of incense or that idea of incense is, is important, right? Just enough to mitigate and to make the service accessible, both applied then and now. Yeah. And what I like about it is that, you know, it's a changing religion, just like what I talked about, you know, finding your voice as a writer, that can change too. You might finally find your voice. You might finally figure out, you know, who you are and how you want to express what's in your heart and in your mind, but you're also changing as a person. So you are going to change and your voice is going to change over time. And, um, you know, the religion grows with you as you grow with the religion. And I, just to build on that, something's being asked of you, right? It's not just about, well, how are they making it accessible and making my experience the most positive it can be, but there's also, if you're not going to learn the Hebrew, at least probably pay attention to the transliteration, participate. There's something being asked of you. What are you willing to do to be a participant in the service? That matters too, right? What am I willing to, to, to put into this? Absolutely. Well, I think we've come a long way from incense, but um, I think that the issues are, are, are very relevant in its own way. Yeah. Living Torah, living Torah. And at least we're still not using our phones in the service, right? That's a, we haven't crossed that line yet. Not yet. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> that is a tircha, right? When you look out, when you're sitting next to somebody and they're texting, it feels like, you know, we're just not engaged, right? And I think that's part of it. Well, it's the same thing at the dinner table. You know, if your kids are looking at the phone, they're definitely not engaged with you at the dinner table. So there, there are lines that, you know, go too far that we can't cross if we want to be engaged with what we're doing. Thank you, Rabbi. I think you're exactly <laughs> right. <laughs> Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks, Rabbi. <laughs>